you brought a Bible with you, would you open to the New Testament book of Colossians? Maybe you're following along on your phone or an iPad, whatever that mode might be, would you get your attention focused on that little book? If you're not sure how to find Colossians, there's a run of books in the New Testament with weird titles, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. Colossians is at the end of that run of weird titles. So open up to chapter 1. As we head towards Easter, we're going to spend some time in this book. It is very Jesus-centered, and as we make our way towards the celebration of the resurrection, you'll understand why I chose this book to prepare our hearts for that. While you're turning there, though, take a look up here on the screen. This is a map of a just a segment of the state of Montana that we would refer to as the High Line. The High Line is Highway 2. It runs through the major towns of the High Line, Cut Bank, Shelby, Chester, Haver, all the way across the state. The High Line runs across. Now, we refer to that entire region as the High Line, but we let our minds focus on those towns that Highway 2 cuts through. But the truth is, the reality is, that there are other tiny little places all along that stretch of Highway 2 that get overlooked all the time. Like this one. Up in the, the very northern part of our state, a little place called Whitlash. Whitlash is a, a unique agriculture community, farming and ranching community. Sits about 100 miles from Haver. Haver is the closest town of any size to Whitlash. In fact, there you can see how you would get from Whitlash to Haver. Takes about 100 miles to do it. And some of it, is pretty miserable driving, especially this time of year. That's the best way to say it. Now, Whitlash, sitting where it does, has a unique, well, feature. It has a port that is right outside of there, called very simply the Port of Whitlash. Because Whitlash is only five miles from the Canadian border, that port is very significant to the farmers and ranchers that live in that area because they do business across the border. And if they didn't have that port, they would have to go all the way over to the interstate and up Highway 15 to cross, and it'd be a, a miserable mess for them to have to do that. So they have the Port of Whitlash, and that's part of what makes this little community kind of significant. But when I say little, I, I mean little. According to the last census, there are 35 full-time residents that live in the community of Whitlash. 35. They have a church, a school that all the kids from the area come to, basically a one-room schoolhouse. They have a post office, which I find kind of intriguing. And they have a Boy Scout campground and a private campground in the little community of Whitlash. Past that, you've got enough houses for 35 people to live in, and most of them are family members, so I think there's three. There are three. Now, here are some other little tidbits that I know personally about this community. The church is kind of unique. My eyes were drawn to it when we drove up the road the first time because my eyes often come to rest on churches. I was enthralled with this one, and I noticed very quickly that out behind the church, there's an outhouse. Now, that's good church in right there if, if you've got an outhouse. Tina and I have 
been at a number of churches, predominantly in Kansas, where there's an outhouse, there's no indoor plumbing, and one in particular, kind of our favorite, there was indoor plumbing for the women, but the men have to go to the outhouse. Well, Whitlash has an outhouse, and this is what makes it really unique, and I still have not figured this out, and I've never found anybody at the church that I could ask about this. They have a satellite dish on their outhouse. I got nothing. I just find that kind of unique. And there are some entrepreneurial people that live in this little tiny community as well. Think about the farmer and rancher that was forward thinking enough to develop a private campground in a place like Whitlash, Montana. Then there's another entrepreneurial family, I don't believe it's the same one, that sells ice. They have an ice machine at the end of their driveway, and it's an honor system. You can come by and bag of, buy a bag of ice and just leave the money in the ice machine and go on your way. That's pretty entrepreneurial. And the best I can tell, they do a good business. There's people up there that their coolers are running low on ice. They got to do something about it. And so these folks in Whitlash figured out how to make that happen. But because of where they sat, the most intriguing part of their community is their connection to the port just a few miles away that allows people to get back and forth across the border. Now, I tell you all of that because there's a little town in the Bible, and you're holding the name of that town in your hands right now. If you're looking in your Bible at the book of Colossians, there's a little town named Colossa that has a lot of similarities to Whitlash, Montana. Let me give you some of them. It sits roughly a hundred miles from the city of Ephesus. We know a lot about Ephesus. The book of Ephesians was written to the believers that live in Ephesus. Colossae is only about a hundred miles away. It has some other towns that are very near to it that we hear about as we go through the Bible. Towns like Laodicea and Hierapolis. We'll read about them in the book of Colossians, but you'll hear about them in other places in Scripture as well. One is to the east and the other to the west. Colossus sat at the junction of two roads. And so it was a very important place in the early days because everybody had to go through Colossae. If they were going to go to Laodicea or they were going to go to Hierapolis, they had to go through Colossa. So it was this junction town that early on historians record that it was a booming place, a growing place. But then for whatever reason, the growth stopped and it began to recede. And it became almost an insignificant place in biblical history. Not much really happened there because the town began to shrink. It was on a growth trajectory, and then it wasn't. And it started to shrink, not only in population, but in significance. That's a tough thing. Tina and I understand that as well because she grew up in a community much like that in the state of Kansas. The name of the town that Tina grew up in is Council Grove. Sits right on the Santa Fe Trail. During the days of the trails, Council Grove was very, very important. It was the last town of any size on the Santa Fe Trail where people could buy supplies, stop at a blacksmith's shop, get everything that they needed before they headed on towards Tucumcari, New Mexico, a long ways away. 
So Council Grove was very important. There's a tree that sits in the center of that town today known as the Post Office Oak. People would leave messages for those that would come behind them nailed to the post office oak. It was a place of communication. It was a lifeline community. It was a place of commerce. It was a place with a booming economy until the railroad came. When the railroad came, Council Grove lost its significance and it began to shrink. It was no longer this place that everyone knew about and everybody came back to and folks knew that when they left there, they better have everything with them. That wasn't important anymore. They lost their vision and their trajectory. Today, Council Grove is a cool little community, but it is tied to history. It is not tied to the future. It is tied to history. And it has shrunk and all growth there has stopped. Much like Colossa. So we can understand what that looks like. We can make that make sense in our minds. Now we know through studying the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul spent the better part of three years in Ephesus, just a hundred miles away. But we also know that he never made it to Colossae. But the message that he preached did The people in Colossae knew about the Apostle Paul. They heard the message that he brought to the church in Ephesus, and they were changed by it. You want to know how we know that? Join me in the book of Acts. Keep your finger there in Colossians 1, but join me in the book of Acts, chapter 19. This is all written while Paul was in Ephesus. Verse 8. Acts 19, verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Verse 10, listen to this. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. When it says all the residents of Asia, that means all the people in Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and other communities just like them. They heard the gospel as Paul preached it in Ephesus. They were touched by it. We can actually trace it out in the book of Acts and get into the book of Colossians and know this to be fact. They heard it through a man named Epaphras who was in Ephesus listening to Paul preach and he took the message back to Colossae and started a church in his home and that church took off. And a lot of folks came to know who Jesus was because of what Epaphras did with the message that he heard from the Apostle Paul. That's the way of the gospel. It is so powerful. It is so powerful. The message that Paul preached made its way to a community that he would never visit on his own. He would never meet this, peop- this group of people, but they would know who he was. They would hear the message that he would share from his heart that had changed his life, and the circular nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ would perpetuate that way. That's what missions work is all about. At Libby Christian Church, we support a number of ministries all around the world. Most of those people that are touched by the ministries that we support, we will never meet. But they'll hear about us, and we will get to hear about them. 
And that's a cool part of missions work. We are connected that way through the kingdom of God. Dave Iliff, say amen to that. Dave knows what that's like. He's been one of those missionaries carrying the gospel to people that we'll never meet, but we got to be a part of it, and he's come back to tell us about what was happening there. That's the story of Colossa. It was a mission community that was started by a man named Epaphras who had had his life changed by the Apostle Paul, and he took the gospel to the people that he loved. It's a cool story. And as a result of that, because Epaphras would go back and forth and he would see Paul in different places, even when Paul was in prison, he would talk about what was happening, or Epaphras would come to meet him and he would tell him about what was happening in the community that he loved so much. And Paul would, he would carry a burden for people that he never met. So much so that he wrote a letter to him because there was a problem in Colossae. Based on where it's said and all these people that had to travel through there, it was a hotbed of philosophy. People would bring all kinds of different teachings to them. They would bring all kinds of different philosophical leanings into this tiny little place. And these folks, without a teacher there, without a pastor there, without somebody to help correct it, were easy prey for false teachers. So that was happening. And Paul decided, I better do something about this. So he wrote a letter to him. Listen to how it starts. This is Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul gets right to it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossa, grace to you and peace from God our Father. He's just in it now. The chute is open and Paul's ready to go. He says, we always thank God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. That last verse that we just read is part of the way that we know that he never met them. He's only heard about them. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. We're just going to stop there this morning. We're not going to go any further. That's how Paul starts his letter to them. When we first read the New Testament, we come across books like Colossians or Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, even the book of Romans or the two letters written, written to the Thessalonians or those that lived in Corinth, we can easily believe that those letters that were written to those churches are specific to those churches and they don't really have any bearing on us. Well, if you fall prey to that thinking, you are going to miss the significance and the personal application of the Bible. So don't ever fall into that easy trap and believe that. Here's the actual truth of how those letters worked. They were written to the churches, and they were to be read aloud among the believers in those churches. And once they had finished their letter, they were to send that letter on to the next church. We'll find out later on in this study that Paul would say, once you've read this letter, make sure they get it in Hierapolis. Make sure they get it in Laodicea. And you read the letters I sent there. 
You guys switch letters. So Paul wasn't just addressing the teaching in each of these letters to one specific place. They were designed to be passed around. But they were written in such a way that every person listening could take something from the letters. That's the beauty of the Word of God. These letters addressed to specific communities had an individual application for every person listening. Now, you want to know another cool level to the Word of God? 2,000 years later, they still do for every one of us. If we will pay attention to what is written in these letters, we will find personal application, something that we are to take from the letter, warnings that we are supposed to pay attention to, things that are supposed to grab us. In this particular case, the crisis that had made its way to Colossae that the Apostle Paul decided to get involved in came through a group of people known as the Gnostics. This is up, it up on the screen. They are a group of philosophers that combined a number of different religions, including Judaism and Christianity. But they also had some Eastern religion that came into their philosophical thinking. Some astrology, studying of the stars, some early ideas of science fiction that governed their belief. They were called the Gnostics because from the Greek, the word actually means to know. The Greek word is gnosis. It looks just like this. That's where the word came from, but it means to know. That's what it means, to know. This group of people, these teachers, really believed that they were a part of the elect, if you pay close attention to some false religions around us today, you can see a portion of the Gnostic philosophy within those other religions. They believed that they were elect, and within their election, there was an elect elect, if you can imagine that. And of the elect elect, those people could attain spiritual perfection through knowledge through gnosis, they could achieve a spiritual perfection so that they could live a sinless life and they could be like God. And that's exactly what they would teach. But they would utilize all these different religions to try to bring that about. And once Christianity took a foothold, they started to see grace in a way that they could use. So they applied New Testament Christianity to their soup of philosophy to bring about some false teaching that was really causing people problems, particularly those that would come from a Jewish background. Because they would say things like this, the Old Testament dietary regulations are necessary in order to become part of the elect elect. If you want to achieve spiritual perfection, you must follow the Old Testament dietary laws. They would apply other things like circumcision. They would say that if you had not been circumcised, there was no place for you in a relationship with God. And so the Jewish people that had been freed from all of this legalism in Christ were now being drugged back into it, but they were also being confused by all this other, otherworldly type of teaching. Remember, it was early day science fiction that really drove the Gnostic people. 
And so people with Jewish roots that were now Christian were being pulled back into Judaism, but they were being shown something else that wasn't true. It wasn't true. One of the biggest problems that the Gnostics had, and even today there are still groups, not very many, but there are still groups of Gnostic believers around the world. The biggest problem they have is with the divinity of Jesus Christ. They do not deny They do not deny the existence of Jesus. They just deny his divinity. He was not the son of God according to the Gnostic philosophies. So they were taking that away from Jesus. They were placing a works mentality, a legalistic works mentality back on New Testament Christians. And the apostle Paul wasn't going to hear of it. He would not abide it. So he wrote to the Colossian church. A letter that is very Jesus-centered. Wanting them to understand who he is. Wanting them, even though he had never met them, but he had heard about them through Epaphras. He knew, he knew that they knew what was right. He wanted them to be tied to it. So he wrote this letter to them. I love how he gets started in it. Once we get past his introduction, who he is and who's with him and who he's writing to, it it just gets really practical really fast. Verse 3 again. We always thank God for the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Now, by the way, if you read this in the original language, verses 3 through 8 There's no punctuation and there is no hint towards punctuation, which the original languages don't use punctuation, but as it is written originally, it just looks like a long, ongoing sentence. So everything that you read in in these five verses, man, they're coming at you fast. So Paul starts out by encouraging them and building them up. But then when you get into the rest of what he writes in these first eight verses, he starts bringing doctrine at them in rapid fire succession. So let's just walk through it up on the screen. And what you're going to see in our first glance is that he puts in the center of all of his teaching what is center to, or central to all of us if we're really going to understand who Jesus is. Take a look at this. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. So right in the center part of this passage, he brings the gospel out. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Don't go back to anything else. Don't look anywhere else. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now watch what he does in this. This is so intriguing. If you are a highlighter, an underliner, a person that really likes inductive Bible study, then you can peel away this passage of Scripture and find a depth of understanding in it that is remarkable. In the center of the passage, 
he brings out our understanding of the gospel, the good news of, of Jesus Christ, and he reminded us early on that that's really who it's about, our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. Our Lord Jesus Christ directs us to the gospel. Now, I love the fact that he brings Jesus out so quickly in this, but he reminds us that our faith must be in him. Take a look. There it is. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, only in Jesus, only in Jesus, nothing else, only in Jesus. By the way, you will hear people today, and it, it happens all the time. I hear it all the time, and I know that you do too. Somebody will say, hey, you just have to have faith. Maybe a person is, is up against a really deep trial in their life, and they're struggling with something, and a person will say, well, you just need to have faith. That is a difficult, dangerous teaching. And let me tell you why. Because if all we say is you have to have faith, we're telling people to have faith in faith. And faith in faith does absolutely nothing for us except change our attitude. It gives us a positive outlook. But faith only in faith is pretty hollow and empty. And it can lead you down horrible roads. Faith in faith could say faith in yourself, faith in whoever's helping you, faith in this, faith in that. If we're going to teach people to have faith, then we have to teach them to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So always complete your sentence. If you're a person that is helping somebody else through a difficult challenge and you're going to tell them you just need to have faith, you complete the sentence. Have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have faith in Jesus you make sure you are telling them where their faith is to be tied. Because remember this, faith does not save. Faith on its own does not save. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. That is a reminder that faith in faith does not save us. Faith in yourself does not save us. Faith by itself, faith in faith, does not save. Faith in the grace that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ saves people. So always complete your sentence. Does that make sense? Shake your head yes. Everybody's with me. If you want to argue with me later, I'm, I'm welcome that argument, and, and Deanie welcomes the noise just fine. All right. Now, we're going to continue to peel away layers of this passage. Take a look at what he says next. It, everything becomes evident about their faith because of the love that they have for all the saints. So they have a relationship with Jesus Christ, a faith in him that is producing something. It is the love that they have for all the saints. And then he reminds them that their hope is laid up in heaven. So he's telling them, you have all this figured out. You're loving other people and you have a hope that is tied to heaven. Don't you let anybody else come in and dilute or pervert your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your knowledge of who he is. Don't you do that. Don't you do that. That's what Paul's going to spend this entire book talking about. Because he's going to correct this wrong thinking that the Gnostics were trying to bring into the church in Colossa. But I love the fact that he says this. Their faith, like it is everywhere, is bearing fruit and increasing. And that's what a relationship with Jesus should do. 
It should bear fruit and increase. Always. Always. And we might wonder, what's that look like? How do we know if we're doing that? Well, let's take a look at the fruit that faith in Jesus Christ bears. For that, we're going to go back to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. If you're not familiar with this verse of Scripture, you need to be. Highlight it, underline it, memorize it. Get it tucked into your heart because it is the key to measuring your growth in Christ. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you're wondering if your faith is bearing fruit, then measure that question against Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Am I increasing in love? What about joy? What about peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness? And this is the most difficult one for me, self-control. How am I doing? How am I doing? And do I need to invest in cultivating that fruit, one particular fruit, more than the others? Maybe I have some of them already worked out, but I need to work on the others. So you pour effort into it. Like a farmer would pour effort into his crop, we pour effort into the fruits of the Spirit so that the yield is as high as it can be. Paul saying to the church in Colossae, your faith, your relationship with Jesus, it's bearing fruit. And I know that because of the love that you have for all the saints. What is the first fruit of the Spirit? Love. Galatians 5. It is love. So Paul says you have the foundational one already obvious. It's already visible. So make sure you continue cultivating the others. That's bearing fruit. But how do we know? How do we know if our faith is increasing? Well, let me take you to the book of James to answer that question. James chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James just gets right to it. And that's a passage of scripture that a number of folks would like to cut out of the Bible. Particularly those that have read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 that we talked about just a few minutes ago. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. So it appears that we're looking at a conflict in Scripture. That's not the case. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is dealing with salvation. James chapter 2 is dealing with justification. There's a difference. Once you have come into Christ, it's time to start the increase of your faith. The minute you come to Christ, it is time to start the increase of your faith. And that happens through works. What are you doing with your faith? That's the increase that Paul was talking about. You start bearing fruit and increasing your faith. Get to growing. Get to going. Get to doing something. I love the way James brings it about. He actually, if we could spend enough time in this passage, would show us that there are three types of faith. Three types of faith. Here they are for you. There's a dead faith. That's that's no faith at all. That's a dead faith. And then there's a demonic faith. The demonic faith simply says, I believe in God. Don't you love how James says that? You say you believe in God. Well, good on you. So do the demons. That's, That's really what James was saying. There you go, you're not alone. Even the demons believe that, but they shudder because they know it. And then there's a dynamic faith, and that's what he's illustrating in James chapter 2. A dynamic faith, a faith that is working, that is doing something. Paul would say to the church in Colossae, that's an increasing faith. That's a faith that is in motion. That is a faith that is doing something. If you're a normal person, you would ask, how can I know? How can I know what type of faith I have? How can I know that I don't have a a dead faith or a demonic faith? I don't want that. How can I know that I have a dynamic faith? Well, let me just leave you with this answer to that question. Ask yourself what kind of soil the gospel has fallen on in your life. Now, let me illustrate that for you from the Bible. You can leave the book of Colossians now and join me in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 13. Verse 1. Really want to encourage you to look for yourself in this passage. And you do that by saying, what kind of soil exists in my life? Listen to Jesus' teaching. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. 
Now, when Jesus shared that with the disciples, they were scratching their heads trying to figure out what in the world he meant. A few verses later, starting in verse 18, he explains it to them. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. That's the explanation. It's a good one. We have to ask ourselves, what kind of soil has the gospel fallen on? By the way, I, I truly believe that soil can change. If it fell on you early in life and you felt like you were a path, okay, if it fell on you and you felt like you were the rocky soil and you started to grow and then some things came along that took it away, okay. If you feel like you had deeper roots but then some thorns grew up and it, it pulled your faith away, okay. But if God has cut the thorns out, if he has picked the rocks out, and if he has broken up the soil on the path and you are good soil, then let the gospel get in there and increase. And that's what Jesus taught. Did you see the increase? For some, it's a hundredfold. For some, 60. For some, 30. You make sure there's an increase. And that is what will protect your faith until you stand before the Lord. That's what will keep the birds away and the thorns away. You make sure your faith increases. If you're not sure what type of soil the gospel has fallen on in your life, or maybe you are sure and it isn't good soil and you want to talk to somebody about that, our prayer room is open. As soon as this service is over, you can just go over there. Deanie will be there. He'll meet you. Make sure you get to talk with somebody. Maybe, maybe some rocks are visible and you know your roots aren't as deep as they should be. Maybe there's some thorns, something that's choking out the increase in your life and it's keeping you from bearing fruit. Why don't you go pray with somebody? Maybe you see that happening in somebody else's life, somebody that you love and care for like Epaphras did the church in Colossae and you want to intercede for them. Why don't you go pray with somebody about that? Why don't you ask God to intercede and intervene so that the enemy is driven away?